In our continuing study of Titus 3, particularly verses 1 to 2, we, we see um, keys to, to help us live as Christians in this mad, mad world. And, and we looked at, uh, we've been looking at this for the past couple weeks. And this morning, I want you to just to see that if you are in Christ, that Christ is living in you and that His holiness is to shine through you. And His holiness pervades everything. He does, and thus should pervade everything that we do. Now, knowing this, implying it to our current situation which we find ourselves in, how are we to respond to government mandates and employer requirements that violate not only common sense, but our personal integrity and, and threaten our ability to provide for our families? How are we to respond when the non-Christian world around us, including some government officials, see injustice when justice is done, and they cry foul in the very things that God approves of and would declare to be good. Does God want us to rally the political troops, so to speak, become political warriors and, in the name of true righteousness, save the republic? As John MacArthur points out, this is how many Christians have responded to this. I'll quote him here. Many well-meaning Christian leaders have founded organizations to counteract anti-Christian influences and assaults. Attempting to fight fire with fire, as it were, Christian organizations, publishers, and broadcasters have sought to counter anti-Christian ideas and programs by using non-Christian, that is, political tactics. They have decided that it is time to stand up for their rights and have declared war on the prevailing non-Christian culture, especially the liberal national media. They have become hostile to unbelievers, the very ones God has called them to love and reach with the gospel. That is, those taking up this method, he says, they have become hostile to unbelievers, the very ones God has called them to love and reach with the gospel. Now, examples of this kind of approach are, are not hard to find at all. Exhibit A this morning is... Uh, Pat Robertson's rallying cry to evangelicals from a number of years ago. He says, God's plan is for his people, ladies and gentlemen, to take dominion. What is dominion? Well, dominion is lordship. He wants his people to reign and rule with him. But he's waiting for us to extend his dominion. And the Lord says, I'm going to let you redeem society. There'll be a reformation. We are not going to stand for those coercive utopians in the Supreme Court and in, and in Washington ruling over us anymore. We're not going to stand for it. We are going to say we want freedom in this country and we want power. Exhibit B this morning comes from D. James Kennedy from a number of years ago. Our job, he says, is to reclaim America for Christ, whatever the cost, as the vice regents of God. We are to exercise godly dominion and influence over our neighborhoods, our schools, our government, our literature and arts, our sports arenas, our entertainment media, our news media, our scientific endeavors, in short, over every aspect and institution of human society. Now, while having good motives, let's make a couple observations. First of all, these, these men's uh, eschatology informs and drives what they believe Christians ought to be doing right now. Eschatology is the study of last things. So their view of the future 
is having an impact on how they live right now and how they are leading people and encouraging people to live right now. So whoever has said that one's eschatology isn't important, and we often hear that, not at this church, but in evangelicalism generally, they'll just say eschatology is not that important. But understand that their eschatology um, is driving how they live right now, and it does have current implications. Whoever has said that one's eschatology isn't that important needs to think more carefully about the current implication of what one believes about the future. That's one reason God tells us so much about the future. Let's just say up front that I'm not making the the case today, because Scripture doesn't, that we're not to be involved in the political process. I'm I'm not saying that, because Scripture doesn't say that. Um, Where we are to be involved in, in the process of choosing leaders and making laws to the extent that we can be. In our country, we have quite a bit of freedom and latitude to do that. We certainly are called to pray for our leaders. Um, we need to keep in mind that the Word of God uh, has tells us that, that God has left us in the world which implies that we are, to one extent or another, going to be involved with the world around us. We are living in the world. We are not to try to escape from the world. So from that standpoint, we are to live as good citizens of the world. At the same time, we are not of the world. That is, our response to and involvement with the world will be flavored by the fact that we're all born-again believers Uh, by the fact that all born-again believers are citizens of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, we need to march to the beat of a different drummer. Uh, Like I was saying earlier, the Lord's holiness pervades our life and changes how we would otherwise react. Uh, Without Christ, we would act one way. With uh, We could be uh, political conservatives as unbelievers, but with Christ, that is no longer an option, that we can only respond like a political conservative. In fact, the way the Lord wants us to respond is more important than our political, um, say, desires. And this is where, where I want to draw your attention to 2 Corinthians 10. In 2 Corinthians 10, look at verses 3 to 6, where Paul says, though, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are, not destro- we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. So he, he's, he's encouraging the Corinthian church that, that they're, they are in a battle, but their battle is not one of flesh and blood. And, and we, in applying that, we need to realize that, yes, we're in a battle today. But it is not a political battle. This is a spiritual battle that can only be won with the Lord's weaponry. Continuing on, look at verse 14. So let your eyes go down to verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. 
Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us, We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, Christians must respond to the world around them in such a way that the grace and truth of Jesus Christ shines through our lives as witnesses to the forgiving, saving and transformational power of God. Notice what our main ministry is. He he has given to us in an external sense, meaning outwardly focused, he's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And therefore, our our ministry of reconciliation that we have with the world around us has got to be foremost to us. And so the way we live and the way that we act is to undergird, support that ministry of reconciliation. It is not to undermine or erode that ministry of reconciliation. And that requires holding, holding out both the truth and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, we must warn the world of judgment. The judgment of God is upon us, this world, and the judgment of God is coming. And we need to warn the world. But we also need to remember that we are called to declare the excellencies of God. We are called to be those ambassadors for Christ. Remember that we are called to be a living testimony to Christ. Or to use the words that we find in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And it is with this background, with this, with this focus and with this alignment that we, we study Titus. Titus is all about helping us to, to get our walk and get our lives uh, going in the direction God wants us to go so that we might be more effective evangelists to the world around us. And, and it is in that light that, that Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 2 give us seven healthy habits or characteristics that, that must be part of our lives as we respond to and interact with those who, who are around us, those outside the church, so that we honor Christ and we maximize our witness for Him. Turn to Titus 3, and let's read that together. Titus 3, verses 1 to 2. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. Now, we've been marching our way through this ever so slowly the last couple of weeks, and, and we've seen uh, several of these. We've looked at several of these characteristics, these healthy habits. Uh, we We see that we are to be subject to the governing authorities. We are to be uh, obedient to the governing authorities, we're to be ready for every good deed, and we're not to malign anyone. And this morning we're going to look at the remainder of verse 2, where we see that we are to be peaceable, gentle, showing consideration for all men. 
So the next uh, response or Christian habit that we are going to look at this morning is to be peaceable, to be peaceable. Now, God brings peace to his people through the wonderful, amazing and life changing gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the reason that it's completely reasonable and rational for God to expect his people to be known by a consistent attitude of peace, an attitude and a lifestyle of being peaceable. God is righteous and altogether holy. And thus, if he were to pour out his wrath upon sin, sorry, if he if he were to pour out his wrath against sin upon the entire world, he would be just in doing so. If God decided to judge the world before before we even were born, he would be just in doing so. If he were to pour out his wrath today and, and remove all sinners uh, from the earth and take them to judgment, he would be just. And yet, nonetheless, God, who is rich in mercy and grace, has chosen to pour out his wrath, not upon them at this time, but to give them time to hear the gospel and to give us time to to tell people about the gospel. The fact that God has poured out his wrath upon his only beloved son in the place of sinners. And Jesus took this wrath upon himself and totally paid the price, the full price He took the full punishment of sin for everyone who would believe in him. And so when anyone believes in Jesus Christ, that is not just not just believe as an intellectual fact, but believe in the idea of trust. When we believe and anyone believes in Jesus Christ as the son of God who bore their sins on the cross, who died in their place and who was raised in newness of life as proof that the penalty of sin has been paid in full and has been accepted by the Father, then that sinner is declared to be righteous, and that sinner, who is formerly at war with God, is brought into a state of settled peace with God. Do you understand that? If you're in Christ today, you have settled peace with God. God will not be angry with you because of what Christ has done. It's not saying he won't discipline you as a father, but that, that wrathful anger that he had towards your sin is totally removed totally removed it's it's gone and and as such that that should have a a drastic change on us not just to lift the weight of guilt upon us to lift that off but also to characterize how we live in this world and i would propose that it's only those who live by faith in jesus christ in this state of settled peace with god who can respond to life's hardships, injustices, unkindnesses, and hatred of the world with a peaceable, considerate, and gentle spirit that desires no personal retaliation or vengeance. Paul tells Titus to remind the Cretan believers that they are to be peaceable. To be peaceable. What does it mean to be peaceable? Well, you could say one definition might be, well, to to not be in a state of war. And you'd be right. But the term is much richer than that. The term peaceable actually is a translation of a compound Greek word. It's actually a negative word that's negated. It, it's, um, it, it, it uses the Greek letter alpha, which negates it. And you're, you're familiar with that even in English we use that. If someone is, is uh, you, you say, moral or amoral, amoral, depending on how you pronounce it. So that's just the negation of the word. Well, that's actually what this word is. It's, it's actually, it's a translation is accurate, accurate, peaceable, but it's actually uh, this negated 
part, this, the word, the, the negative in the front and then the word behind it. What is that word behind it? It, it is the word, it is a word that's related to the realm of combat. It, whether physical combat, combat in the military sense or verbal combat in the general sense. And thus, if we put these words together, literally, they mean to be non-combative, to be non-argumentative, or to be non-quarrelsome. D. Edmund Hebert echoes this by explaining that in the Greek, to be peaceable is another negative demand, to be non-fighting, that is, refusing to engage in quarrels and conflicts. The Christian must not adopt the arts of the agitator. I repeat that, the Christian must not adopt the arts of the agitator. Thus, we need to understand, as George Knight notes, that this means being peaceable in the sense of being uncontentious. Being peaceable means to be uncontentious. Listen to this uh, important exhortation that that, that MacArthur provides at, at this point. He says, we are to be uncontentious, meaning friendly and peaceful towards the lost, rather than quarrelsome and belligerent. In an ungodly, immoral society, it is easy to become angry with those who corrupt it, condemning them and writing them off as hopeless and beyond the pale of God's grace. But we have no right to become hostile when unbelievers act like unbelievers. If God so limitlessly and unconditionally loved the world that he sent his sinless son to redeem it, How can we, as sinful recipients of his redeeming grace, be callous and loveless toward those who have not yet received it? So the characteristic of being peaceable is is to to be part of our lives in an ongoing and consistent trait or as a a healthy habit in our lives. And this this idea is found uh, in in several places in Scripture. So in in the book of Titus, just let your eyes... Uh, look at verse 9 of chapter 3 where the same word is used there but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife and disputes the word disputes there is the word we're looking at just it's just not negated right so there's no alpha uh, primitive there's no alpha prefix i should say on on that term so the word there is is rightly translated disputes. Avoid the, the strife and disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Then kind of expanding the context uh, a little bit, Second Corinthians 7, 5 tells us that Paul says, For even when we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest, but we were afflicted on every side, conflicts without fears within. The word conflict is, is again, that same Greek word conflicts without so it gives you an idea of how the word is used it, it, it is used in the sense of conflict and you uh, undoubtedly have read the word with, maybe without even knowing in it in James 4 1 there James says what is the source of your of quarrels and conflicts among you what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you is not the source the your pleasures that wage war in your members the word conflicts again is that same Greek word that we find in Titus and again, looking at the Apostle Paul in, in 2 Timothy 2, verses 23 and 26, this habit of being peaceable must be part of an elder's life. But refuse foolish, he says to, to Timothy, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. There's, there's your word again, quarrels. 
The Lord's bond slave must not be quarrelsome. That's the verb related to the word quarrel. So it's, it's just emphasizing that. The, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, and that's a word we're going to look at in a moment, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. There's just so much packed into that verse, right? So we are to respond with grace, remembering that, that they are acting out because of their sinful bent, because of their hatred towards God, but also because they're being held captive by Satan. They, they would never say that. Even the atheists are being held captive by Satan. So that tells us the importance of responding with gentleness. We are trying to reach not enemies, but the lost. We are trying to free captives from the realm of Satan. Bring them into the kingdom of light. First Timothy three three again just reemphasizes that this this aspect needs to be part of an elder's life. There he says, overseers of the church, that is elders, must be not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle. Again, that's a word we'll look at in a moment. Peaceable, um, free from the love of money. And the word peaceable is the same word which we have in our text in Titus three. So we're, we're going to press some of the implications of this in a moment. But, but understand that, that being peaceable is something that God calls each one of us to. This isn't just for elders. God calls us to be uncontentious, right? to be peaceable in our response to those around us. And he adds to that, you see in verse, uh, verse 2, that phrase, that word, gentle. We are to be gentle now being gentle is closely related to being peaceable that's why in some of these verses we actually read that peaceable and gentle in the, in the same uh, text and i pointed those out as we went through that these characteristics of being gentle and peaceable tend to blend and complement each other strengthen one another and the opposite is also true the lack of of one of these leads to a lack of the other it's it's really hard to be uh, gentle if you're all worked up and contentious, so you're fighting inside. But when you are approaching those around you with uh, in a have a peaceful attitude, it's a whole lot easier to be gentle in your response. Now, what does Paul mean by uh, the word gentle? What does Paul mean when he commands Titus to remind them to be gentle? Well, if you just start with an English dictionary. Sometimes that's helpful. Sometimes it's not because of the, the differences of meanings between the English and the Greek. But if we look at Webster's uh, English dictionary, the word gentle has quite a broad range of meanings. I won't bring all of them into our lesson this morning, but a, but a few of them, some of the older ones, might be to be well-born of a good family or a respectable birth. That's, that's a rather old one, particularly English-type um, meaning. Then it can also mean quiet and refined in manners, not rough, harsh, or stern, mild, meek, bland, amiable, or tender, not wild, turbulent, uh, quiet and docile, tame, Peaceable, so it's so close, even in English, something we throw in the word peaceable. It can also mean soft, not violent or rough, not strong, loud or disturbing, easy, soothing, pacific. Uh, 
we talk about the Pacific Ocean, you may not know that the word actually means like peaceful and placid. Um, on, on that. That's why it's called the Pacific Ocean. Um, but all of those, you read all those, and you're like, well, what exactly? It's such a broad range of meaning. What exactly does Paul mean when he says to be gentle? Well, I, actually, in this case, I don't think the English dictionary is all that helpful because of such a broad meaning. So we need to look at a uh, at the Greek meaning. The meaning of the Greek word carries some of those meanings that I read, but is a bit richer in its meaning. The, the Greek word carries the ideas of being gentle, gracious, kind, and considerate. Right? So if you took all those four words in English, gentle, gracious, kind, and considerate, put them together, that's what the Greek word is pointing at. And, and we see the, this, the range of meaning, we even see this range of meaning in the various English translations. I've mentioned before that sometimes it's helpful to look at a different version than what you normally look at uh, and this is one of those texts where it's kind of helpful to see the richness of this term. The English Standard Version, the New American Standard Version, and the New King James Version use the word gentle here. They use the translation gentle. The NIV, the Legacy Standard Bible, use the word considerate, to be considerate. And then the Christian Standard Bible uses the word to be kind. And so you kind of get the flavor that this word's really difficult to translate. In fact, there isn't a, a good word in English that really captures what the Greek word means. And, and so that's why different translations use uh, different words for that. D. Edmund Hebert explains that the Holy Spirit's intent is to remind each believer that we must be considerate, that is to be gentle or yielding, not stubbornly insisting on his own rights, but acting in courtesy and forbearance. Let me read that again. We are to be considerate, that is to be gentle or yielding, not stubbornly insisting on his own rights, but acting in courtesy and forbearance. And, and we gleam, again, some of the richness of this term by seeing how the, how the word is even used in the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint is a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament. So in Jesus' time, uh, Hebrew had been practically lost, right? And so the, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. And so we have that Greek translation. And so those Greek words that, that came from the, the Hebrew terms kind of give us an understanding on, on how terms, the Old Testament terms mean and, and reflect back into how the Greek meanings even reflect back to the Old Testament Hebrew words and how Hebrew words even have impact on the Greek meaning. But in Psalm 86.5, we read this. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Now, the term ready to forgive is a translation of one Hebrew term that describes God as forgiving. So it's one Hebrew term translated again into Greek and then from the Greek into English. The translation is ready to forgive. And the Septuagint translates this term with the same Greek word that is used in Titus 3.2, which the NASB translates as gentle and the Legacy Standard Bible translate, translates as considerate. So when you are considerate, when you are gentle, you are ready to forgive. Right? It is a characteristic and attitude of God that, that, that God wants to express through you, through the power of a spirit. 
So this means that a readiness to forgive in the midst of some offense or injustice which has occurred. And, and you're probably thinking, man, that's, that's really hard. And, and you're right. It's, it's God-like. Because God forgave us while we were agitators, while we were sinners, while we were enemies of the cross. He forgave us. He was ready to forgive. So you see, he's calling us just to, to emulate his characteristics in an imperfect um, and, and um, an imperfect way. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament provides additional helpful information about really the, the richness uh, of the, and the historical roots of this Greek term. In the Septuagint, I'm going to quote here, in the Septuagint, this word is mostly used for God's disposition as a ruler. That is, for the kindness or goodness which he can display as king. It can thus be used of earthly kings and of men who are close to God and who should thus be holy as he is. God in his heavenly greatness as ruler, the human king who should be his earthly reflection and all those who have God's gift and commission have this disposition of mildness just because they exercise sovereign sway. See, they're drawing the connection here that I was just making. That because God is ready to forgive, God is gentle, God is considerate, God is kind, you are to be considerate, gentle, you are to be kind, you are to be ready to forgive. If you, if you truly know the Lord, this is your calling. Now, now think about this. We, we turn to 2 Corinthians 10 at the opening, but I want to point out a few things there again. Think about what Paul said in, in 2 Corinthians 10.1. He says, now I, Paul, myself urge you by the meekness and what? Gentleness of Christ. I who am meek when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. Notice what he's doing there. Paul says, now I myself urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He is pointing to to the meekness, a term we'll look at in a moment, the gentleness of Christ as one reason why the Corinthian believers should listen to Paul and and follow his admonitions. This gentleness of Christ. Christ was known as someone who was gentle. Gentleness here is the same Greek word as as the one we we pointed to in Psalm 86.5 in the Septuagint and the same one that we find in our text in Titus 3.2. And thus the theological, uh, sorry, the... uh, Theological Dictionary of the New Testament notes that Paul urges Corinthians to heed his words in part by the gentleness of Christ. And again, I quote them. Christ is an example as the revealer of divine and royal majesty. As the heavenly king, he is gentle as only one who has full power can be. Gentleness is thus a complement of heavenly majesty. Gentleness is thus a complement of heavenly majesty. The weak are always anxiously trying to defend their power and dignity. He who has heavenly authority can display saving, forgiving, and redeeming clemency even to his personal enemies. Think about that. That, That's a profound statement. The weak are always anxiously trying to defend their power and dignity. He who has heavenly authority can display saving, forgiving, and redeeming clemency, that is forgiveness, even to his personal enemies enemies that that's that's just pro- very profound so so you need to see that that god is with you and as that as god is with you that you have the ability you have the the, the kingly majesty 
that, that flows through your new spiritual blood to help you to respond with this gentleness, that you are to be gentle. Um, the, the same diction I quoted before goes on to highlight the important characteristic between Christ and uh, this important characteristic between Christ and those who represent Christ. And they say there that Paul and the community have also a heavenly calling. Thus they are, they are thus associated with divine glory. For this reason they too must display gentleness. Even in the most difficult situations, the gentleness of Christ must determine the relations of Paul and the community, unquote. So we just need to recognize that this characteristic of being gentle or considerate comes from God through His Spirit to all who are in Christ by faith. It is a fruit that is produced by the Spirit. Being gentle or considerate in the face of adversity or injustice then becomes an identifying sign of all those who are truly sons and daughters of God by faith in Jesus Christ. So this isn't this isn't like the just the person who has a... Um, Say a quiet demeanor naturally. This is not what we're talking about. This this is a a um, a almost like a control uh, power authority and under control power under control. Right, you are bridling your spirit how you would normally respond for the sake of being ready to forgive. There's a, there's a wonderful example. Of this I won't take time to turn to, but I'll just reference to it briefly. There's a time and period in, in Israel's history during, during the ministry of Jeremiah the prophet in which he was calling the nation to repentance. That God was using Jeremiah. And he told Jeremiah to tell the nation Israel that if they, that if they went, if they surrendered to King Nebuchadnezzar, that they wouldn't, they wouldn't be drug off. He would sustain them. He, he said that they, if they surrendered to him, they'd be well cared for. They'd be provided for and he would sustain their lives because he was going to judge his nation. He was determined to do that. But he said, if you, the nation, surrenders to Nebuchadnezzar, then then, you know, your little ones aren't going to die in battle and, and you'll be fed and you'll be taken care of. But to everybody who fights Nebuchadnezzar is going to be wiped out. Right? Maybe not every single person, but he said he was coming against them. But there were false prophets and false priests who then gave an opposite message and said, Jeremiah is lying. And because the message that Jeremiah was giving was treasonous. It was treason to speak against your own nation like this. They saw it as such. And so many proposed to kill Jeremiah. And there was this great debate about it. But what Jeremiah tells them is that it, basically he's very calm. He doesn't get upset. He simply says that the Lord's judgment is coming. And if it doesn't, the Lord isn't speaking by me. He says, and if you kill me, and you can, you will merely bring more judgment upon your head. Very calmly. He says that. That's, that's an illustration for us of how God wants us to respond in the face of adversity. Now, Jeremiah didn't do that because he was a courageous man. Jeremiah didn't do that because he, he was... Um, you know, like like Samson and strong and able to defeat an army himself. How did how did Jeremiah have that kind of resolve and inner strength? Only because he knew what God told him, and he knew what was going to happen, and the judgment was going to come. And he had confidence that whether by life or whether by death, God would care for him. 
And, and that is how we are to respond in, in, to our world in these times. You, you don't have to fear for your death. You can know that God cares for you. And you can be gentle because he is gentle. And this point is brought out for us in a, in a different way in Philippians 4.5. In Philippians 4.5, there Paul says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. Same word, gentle spirit. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. I think it's important that he says the Lord is near. If you're, if you're all by yourself and you're attacked, you feel defenseless, you feel weak, there's reason, there's reason to be afraid. But if you know God is near you, but well, you're not afraid. Now this is an imperfect uh, illustration, but I'll give it nonetheless. You know, when you're a little child and something fearful happens, maybe it's really dark outside, that would cause you to, to want to run and hide. But if your dad is nearby, who's big and strong, and you reach out and grab hold of his hand, or grab hold of mom's hand, who is there to, to help you, then, then the dark's not nearly so scary anymore. Even, even in a physical sense, in a, in a child-parent a child relationship. And that's the illustration I want you to think about. That's why we can be gentle. Because our big father, our holy father, our gentle father is right there near you. He's near you. He's not a God far off. Like some would say, he's near you. He's with you. He will care for you. We must not miss the connection between the nearness of God and our call to let our gentle and considerate attitude flavor all the relationships around us this is how the world will know that we truly belong to god again i want to go back to read something from a dictionary i mentioned um, theological dictionary in the new testament he said because because the lord is at hand and the final glory promised to christians will soon be a manifest reality they can be gentle or considerate towards all men in in spite of every persecution Faith in their hidden heavenly plenitude of light and power and life produces a saving gentleness. It is the earthly counterpart of the heavenly glory. Hence, it is not weakness or sentimentality. It is the earthly outworking of an eschatological possession. Christians can be gentle and considerate in, in virtue of their heavenly calling given to them by God. So we look to the fact that God is near. We look to the fact that God has given us a heavenly kingdom in which all glory will be displayed and God will bring us there. He'll provide it for us. There will be perfect reign. All, all sin will be done away with. We can look forward to that and not be fearful of the current circumstances in which we face. And this is why Paul wrote to Titus to to remind believers of these things, to remind believers to be gentle, considerate. And then closely related to this is the third term we're looking at today, or the seventh healthy habit that must characterize our response, and that is that we are to show every consideration for all men. To show every consideration for all men. The end of verse 3. This last habit is very closely related to the idea of being gentle and since gentleness is related to peaceable, all these three kind of flow together. You know, the cord of three strands is not easily broken. These things are meant to go together. 
and th- again, this close relationship is is seen by just noting how some tra- how some translations translate this. So I'll just compare two. The New American Standard Version translates it this way. Uh, the NASB, remind them to be gentle, showing every consideration for all men. The LSB reads this way, remind them to be considerate, demonstrating all gentleness to all men. What happened? They just swapped those two. That shows you how closely related they they are. And and I do like the LSB there because there's some in some ways it's more consistent with some other texts that we we could uh, cross reference with that. But but the point is that neither neither the word, the English word gentle or the English word considerate captures really the the, the full meaning there that we find in in the Greek. Um, now the Greek word uh, that we find here that that we find this third term um, refers to an attitude of mind. The opposite of self-assertiveness and harshness. And this comes from Hebert. It refers to an attitude of mind opposite of self-assertiveness and harshness, which he, which Hebert denotes is a difficult test of Christian character, but one that effectively proves the genuineness of the Christian profession. And, and that's it, right? This is something which is difficult. Not difficult to understand. This is difficult for us to do. Continuing to to, to help us understand uh, this term, MacArthur highlights that showing every consideration for all men is a characteristic closely related to the previous two. In the Greek literature, consideration was sometimes used of a feigned hypocritical concern for others that is motivated by self-interest. But in the New Testament, it is always used of genuine consideration for others and is sometimes translated in this verse as meekness or humility. Again, other words that would be closely synonymous. So it it is that concern for others that is motivated not by self-interest, but it's motivated by the desire to glorify God and is motivated by the desire to win that person to Christ. Richard Trench and his Synonyms of the New Testament explains that the word gentleness or consideration, it's that third term, refers to an inward grace of the soul, an inward grace of the soul. And the exercises of it are first and chiefly toward God. It is that temper of spirit in which we accept his dealing with us as good and therefore without disputing or resisting. It is only the humble in heart, which is also the meek, and which, as such, does not fight against God and more or less struggle and contend with Him. This meekness, however, being first of all a meekness before God, is also such in the face of men, even of evil men, out of a sense that these, with the insults and injuries which they may reflect, are permitted and employed by Him for the chastening and purifying of His elect. That last statement, I think, is extremely important for us to understand. And I'll just read that again. That this this meekness, being first of all a meekness before God, is also such in the face of men, even of evil men, out of a sense that these, with the insults and injuries which, which they may inflict, are permitted and employed by him for the chasing and purifying of his elect. Remember that imagery of God being near? Well, he's near even in difficult times. And, and, and what we can say with confidence, as when he is near and when we experience hardship, 
or difficulty or insults, we can rest confidently knowing that it's for our good. So you could say to God, God, I don't like this. I don't like it. It's not fun, but I trust you. I trust you that you're going to use this for my good and for your glory. That's where faith comes in, to exercise this characteristic of showing consideration for all men or being gentle, showing all gentleness for all men, demonstrating that. Now, the adjective form of this word is found in Jesus' sermon in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the gentle. Uh, Jesus describes himself by this word in Matthew eleven twenty nine. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. So this, this, this aspect of be showing all consideration for all men is something that Jesus himself did. And Matthew highlights this characteristic of Jesus in Matthew 21, 5 where he, in quoting the Old Testament, he says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the full of a beast of burden. So when you hear that word, that gentle, reference to Christ, it is that idea of, of showing consideration, doing what is, what is good for the other. So it's very much connected with the idea of agape love, isn't it? Right? Very much aligned with that. So that, that's what God is calling us to. The Apostle Paul points to this characteristic of Jesus in, in urging the Corinthian believers. I already read to you 2 Corinthians 10.1 to point out the gentleness of Christ, but now the meekness. Now I, Paul, he says in 2 Corinthians 10.1, now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And then he continues. So he's pointing both to characteristics we've looked at this morning that, that Paul uh, is commanding Titus to, to remind the believers to do these things. And they are, that they are to be characterized by these things. When the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within a believer at the moment of salvation, he begins transforming him so that he produces gentleness in us, as described in the, the passage on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians five twenty two and 23. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, Self-control against such things, there is no law. So these things are produced by the Spirit. This characteristic is to be shown in the process even of church discipline. In Galatians 6.1, we read this. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each one looking to yourselves that you too will not be tempted. Paul instructs believers in Ephesians 4.2 to live their lives with all humility and gentleness, all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then this is reiterated again by Paul in Colossians 3, Colossians 3.12-13. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, Bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. So look at what the Lord has done for you, and that is to motivate your response, your gentle, your considerate response to those around you. Again, show you how pervasive this is. 
Again, we'll look, we'll look at James. This time, James one twenty one. James highlights that this characteristic is is needed in, uh, to help us to be teachable to the Word of God. This isn't just about interacting with with others. This is interaction with the Word of God itself. So with God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness, in humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. There, the word humility is, is the same Greek word. Uh, in 1 Timothy 6.1, Paul lists this characteristic as one that must be pursued in order to avoid ungodliness. He says, but flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So, not only is it a fruit of the Spirit, but it's something we are to pursue, right? In opposite to pursuing self-will and pursuing ungodliness. And then in Second Timothy 2, verses 24 and 26, Paul instructs Timothy this way, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome. We read this passage earlier, but again, it's just a, again looking how this word is tied in. The Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You see, we have to hold out God's truth. Right? So sometimes Christians err in that they hold out truth with no grace. Sometimes Christians try to hold out the grace of God with no truth. God wants us to hold out the truth of God with grace because that's who Christ was. He was the God of truth and grace. Now, lest we misunderstand what God is telling us to do here, we need to see that, that the calls not to slander anyone, to be peaceful, considerate, demonstrating all gentleness, are, are not a call to wimpy, spineless, or timid living. That's not what he's saying here. We are called to stand for truth and live with grace, just as our, our Lord and our God did. So we're not, we're not talking just about the human level kind of timid spirit or, or, or weak person that, that, that just w- won't uh, engage with anyone. That's, that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about taking a stand for truth with an attitude of grace. Allowing everything you do to be seasoned, as it were, with salt. So that, you, that, that your speech would not lead to the ruining of the hearers who hear you. As one commentator notes, when, when the command to show all consideration to all men is combined with Paul's repeated insistence on ambitious exercise of good works, it is doubtful he wants Titus to instill continuous bland timidity in those under his care. Their lives should rather be ongoing demonstrations of considerateness, which explains, which one dictionary explains as gentleness in the sense of the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. Paul is calling for behavior free of arrogance and proud cockiness, not a gentleness that is always deferential to everyone a grotesque disposition that would define the Christian as a quailing caricature. That's not what he's calling us to. He's not calling us uh, to to be differential to everybody. He he is telling us that as we stand for truth, we must not be arrogant. We must not be proud. We must not be first and foremost concerned about ourselves, but others. Now, as we 
step back a minute and look at the, the, all that God is calling us to, you might say that, even if we're just looking at the, th- at the three commands we looked at today, be peaceable, gentle, considerate, this triple command is a lofty goal. And some would say it's something like a mission impossible, especially in the face of persecution or harsh treatment or injustice. And we would agree with them from the human perspective. From the human perspective, a a peaceable, considerate, and gentle response to uh, hurtful and provocative treatment is uh, is normal. And, um, or I say this is not normal. You know, we, we can't respond this way on our own. When we are provoked, when we are hurt, when we are persecuted, we can't uh, respond in a peaceable, considerate, and demonstrated way like God wants us to in our own strength. That's just not possible. And, and, and we would certainly understand why someone would naturally respond with hatred, slander, verbal fights, and retaliation. So the calling that God calls us to is a high calling, especially when we see the extent of the command. Let's look at me again at verse 3, just a minute. I didn't mention it up till now, but I read it, but I didn't highlight it. Look at verse 2. Showing every consideration for all men or show or demonstrating all uh, grace to all men. Notice the extent. Full throttled grace to everyone around you. Full throttled grace to everyone around you. That shows you how high the command is. You, you, you can't do this on your own. This isn't talking about just your personal characteristics. This is talking about Christ living his life through you. You're to pursue it in dependence upon him. That's his grace. That's his his calling. That's how he lives his life through you. Thus, these commands are not something we can do on our own. Yet, as children of God, through faith in Jesus Christ, we have rich resources that enable us to respond in, in such a way that the world sees we are truly related to Jesus Christ. What are these resources? I'll just mention a few. We have a new nature. We are given the Holy Spirit. When we are given the Holy Spirit, God gives us a, a new nature. We experience the new birth. This is also called regeneration. Paul says in 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Another resource we have is the renewed minds that God gives us. When he regenerates us, he renews our minds so that we're able to understand and joyfully obey the word of God. Just there, think about uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that a natural man does not accept the, the depths of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. But the one who spiritual examines all things, yet he himself is examined by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will direct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. God has given us a mind to understand and obey. Thirdly, next resource I want to highlight is that we have God as our trainer and discipler. We have God as our trainer and discipler. He's there encouraging us to obey his word. Hebrews 12.1 tells us that all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So God's involved their lives, training us to to do this, to respond in these ways. 
And then I want to also highlight that we have an indwelling helper. I've mentioned him already. That is the Holy Spirit who bears fruit in our lives and strengthens us to do the will of God. And then, based on these things, beloved, we we know, based on God's word, we know what God has done for us. We have accurate knowledge of the past, present, and future. Just highlight some things. And these, this influences how we live. The past, God has saved us by His grace, despite our past sinfulness. And we're going to see that when Paul points to, and, and you just take a look at verse 3, we see the word for, verse 3 of uh, Titus 3, for we also once, he's going to look to the past. And he's going to point to what happened in the, who we were in the past and what God did in the past. We know that with certainty. And we also know with certainty our present. That, that God's power and his providence is currently protecting us and working all things for our good. Right? Just think about in that light, First Peter one five and Romans eight twenty eight. You can stand in the face of provocation, knowing that your God is with you, and you will not experience anything that His sovereign hand, His guiding hand, is not directing you to do. And so, depending upon Him, you can bear under whatever it is that comes your way in a way that glorifies Him, because He's there with you. He, in fact, is protecting you. Nobody can lay a hand on your head without God allowing them to do that. So just looking to him for his protection, his care, knowing that all things, even the very painful things that happen to us are are for our good. God will work out good. You may say, I don't understand how the death of a loved one can work out to be good. Well, you're not called to understand. You're, You're just called to trust. Because there's ways that God works that out that we will not see until uh, we get to heaven. And I think in heaven, the Lord will reveal that mysterious tapestry that he is creating and using in our lives. And he'll show us all the things that he did through that. But on this side of glory, you will not see it. So you're just called to trust that these things are true because his word declares it. And we know with certainty the future. Think about a future for just a minute. John 10, 27 and 30 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give, the, I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So he's, what is he saying? He's saying your security, your salvation is totally secure. How do you know if you're a sheep of God? Trust him. Have you trusted him? for salvation and eternal life? If you have, you are His sheep. And as His sheep, He protects you. He guarantees you eternal life. And He even uses the imagery there. He says if someone was possibly, hypothetically, able to, to steal someone out of my hand, uh, my Father, he's given, he's given all my sheep to me. My Father, who is greater than all, will protect them. There's no power on earth, no power on earth at all that that can separate us from from God's love. Then think about 1 John 3, verses 2 to 3. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. 
turn, if you will, on this light. I want you to see verse you, you I'm sure you know well. Uh, sorry, Romans 8. Romans 8. These thoughts must, must influence and infiltrate our minds so that we respond the way that God wants us to respond. Let me just pick up reading a verse, um, Romans 8, verse 29. For those whom, let's just back up to 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation, distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Wow, what, a, what powerful an encouraging text that is. Notice that Paul interjects there a quotation from the Old Testament speaking of his own life, for your sake, meaning for the Lord's sake, for God's sake, we are being put to death all day long. The world treats us, treats us as a scum of the earth. The world at times strikes Christians down, happening today in some places of this world. Christians are being struck down for the name of Christ. They're being slaughtered just like sheep but they'll never be separated by the love of God. And none of that happens by accident. So as our nation changes in ways that are not good, recognize God's providence is at work. He often allows the evil and the unjust to rise up so that he might judge them. And during the process of that, he uses his people as witnesses to him to save some of those people. Remember, it was in the face of such persecution that the Apostle Paul was, saw a Christian willing to die joyfully. Stephen, Stephen's martyrdom. There was Paul. And, and yes, Lord Jesus confronted Paul on the road to Damascus. But undoubtedly, he used the testimony of Stephen, of Stephen's martyrdom, uh, as, as, as one of those data points in his head to help him connect what the Lord was saying. So you must understand that the Lord calls his people to live out grace and truth, which so filled the life of Jesus Christ. We aren't called to take up political arms. Again, I'm not arguing against political involvement as a citizen of the United States or the citizen of whatever country you are of. 
participate in it. Because you are in the world, but you must remember that you are not of the world. And we must respond with grace, with gentleness, uh, with all consideration to all men, not slandering them. And it's very popular right now to slander. Both sides are doing it. The ultra left and the ultra right. They're just, and the words are getting worse and worse and the more despicable and the more despicable. But we are not called to do that. Beloved, Titus 3, verses 1 to 2, provides us a reminder of seven healthy habits that must characterize our response to the world around us. We do this for God's glory. We do this to maximize our witness to the world around us. Be subject to your governing authorities. Be obedient to your governing authorities. Be ready for every good deed. Don't malign anyone. Be peaceable. Be considerate. Demonstrate all gentleness to all men. Full throttled grace and gentleness to everyone around you. That certainly isn't going to be the rallying cry of a political campaign, but it is a rallying cry for God's people. And as we remember this, remember that this isn't self-generated type motives or attitudes. We can't do that. But this, this, is, this is a reminder of the important grace-generated, spirit-empowered, Christ-honoring habits that must distinctively mark the lives of all those who are God's children. And if we will do this, even imperfectly, because that's all we have is imperfect obedience, if we will do this imperfectly in dependence upon Him, He will use us as His ambassadors. And at the day you see Him, He will say, Well done, good and faithful servant. And that, that's all any of us could ever hope for. Again, let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we, we just so thank, are so thankful for you. Not because of what you do. We are thankful of you. You yourself. Lord, as we think about heaven and the glories to come, the joys of seeing loved ones in Christ who have departed this earth before us, all that's good. Streets of gold sounds spectacular. Having no sin, having no stain or impact of sin sounds marvelous. But the greatest gift of heaven is you. Let us not lose sight of that. Lord, help us to, to, to grasp a greater glimpse of you. And knowing your characteristics, Lord, just infuse these into our lives, albeit imperfectly here now, so that we might represent you, so that people can see Christ in us, living through us. Oh God, do these things for your glory and our good and joy. It's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.